the show with your friend and mine. So tell me, Dr. Squee, who's it gonna be this time? We like to hear you talk, and we love to hear you listen. And if you are not subscribed, you won't know what you're missing. So welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. Welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. This is David Osmond from the Firesign Theater. Whenever I'm kind of wandering around the blogs trying to find something really interesting, I go to the bear and I ask the bear to show me the Dr. Squee Show. It's wonderful. Hello and welcome to the Dr. Squee Show. I'm Dr. Squee and this is my show. And... It's a kind of uh, mixed feeling I've got tonight because, yeah, I'm always excited whenever I get to do this and I feel very fortunate that I get to host this radio show. Unfortunately, it's the last here on the Bear.Live. As listeners who were with us last week will know, uh, the Bear is roaring its last tomorrow uh, here on the Bear.Live because, um, you know, Al did an amazing thing, our beloved station manager, of launching this radio station and keep it, keeping it going for a year. Unfortunately, that's a difficult thing to do, and it's even more difficult to get a dedicated listenership. And Al has really put everything he can into it, but it's come to a point whereby, um, after a year, we're going to be closing the doors on the Bear.Live. It doesn't mean that the Dog Squeeze Show is going anywhere. It's going to be still available in podcast form, and hopefully we'll find a new radio home for it very soon. But enough of that. We will talk all about that later. Tonight, we're very excited to welcome Al himself onto the show to talk about the Bear.Live, talk about the journey it went on over the last year and how exciting that was. The good times, the bad times, mostly good times, though, because it's been a real blast to be here on the station. And Al has done some wonderful things. And we'll talk about that in a bit. After that, we're going to be talking to Joel Susan, who is the director, producer and writer behind such films as Bill and Ted, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, the first classic. He worked on Freddy's 2, uh, sorry, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, on Piranha 3, Double D, Highlander Endgame, amongst a slew of other hit films. He's going to talk to us as well about his new film, My Best Worst Adventure, which is a wonderful independent, independent project he's been working on. And uh, I've seen the trailer. It's fantastic. Unfortunately, due to YouTube and uh, the powers that be on Facebook and many other places being a little bit punchy, uh, we are not going to play the trailer in case, you know, in, in future broadcasts this gets taken down. However, please do go and check that out on YouTube and Vimeo and you can uh, see those trailers. So, guys, it's going to be a wonderful show. We've got a lot going on. Of course, I spoke to Joel the other day. We're going to bring that pre-record, but Al's going to join us live, so that's very exciting. But let's kick it off with some tunes. Now, I've gone for the sort of theme of not only some of my favourite tunes, which I've played over the last year here on The Bear, but also some tunes for a kind of closing down day. A couple of you, you have suggested to me some tunes I might like to add to that, so I'm going to play those too. But let's kick it off with the first track, I played on the bear. Now, this is the song which I used when I was testing my equipment. I was on a laptop at the time. I'm now uh, on a proper computer. But to make sure that the radio 
equipment and the radio broadcast would work on my laptop. I played this track, so I had it kind of playing on loop while I was testing this, that, and the other. And it's a great tune and one which I could hear over and again. It's Freddie Mercury, and this is The Great Pretender. You listen to The Bear on a Thursday night. was the Matt Lee's band and going home. We are now joined uh, by our beloved station manager here on the Bear.Live, here for one last roar, if you will. Please welcome Mr. Al Galpin. How are you doing, sir? I'm very good, thank you. How are you? Yeah, very well. Are you ready to give this uh, radio station a bit of an Irish wake tonight? Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, first of all, I know I've said it to you and I know I've said it on the air last week. But I just really want to congratulate you. It's uh, no mean feat, sir, to have an idea of a radio station and then will that idea into existence. And to do that for a year is absolutely wonderful. And um, the radio shows you've done and all the talent you've brought to this station has been astounding. But, sir, maybe you could uh, take us a little bit back and tell us about how you first started off the station. You know, I kind of started as as Matt's fault, really. Yeah. Uh, having listened to him do a radio show, I was like, oh man, yeah, I'd like to do something like that. And explore different avenues of what I could do. And then talking to yourself, talking to uh, Darren, uh, and uh, thinking, well, there's a few of us here that are interested, who would be good at doing radio shows. Why don't we see if we can do something and set something up? So that's how the idea came about. And then looking into it, I quickly realised that actually getting us on air and getting us up and running on a internet radio station is is actually pretty easy and pretty straightforward and, and quite quick to do. It's keeping <laughs> keeping us there is, is the problem, <laughs> and keeping us legal with the the music side of things uh, is the expensive part. Um, there are different ways of doing it. We uh, we pumped for one option that turned out not to be great, and we had to change after a few weeks. You know the tech stuff is always always fun to work out. It's just a, it's a lot of work to keep things going because obviously a, a station that's on twenty four seven needs content. So at first you have to sort out that find all the music, all that kind of stuff, get that uploaded to the to the site, and create playlists and all that fun stuff. That's you know it's quite fun to, to decide what we're going to play. It's then finding people to come on and do live shows. It's finding pre recorded shows to air. Unfortunately, there's lots of great syndicated radio shows out there. So we, we've had a lot of them on the, the show over the last year. But we've had that call kind of every night. We've had a live show almost every night. You know, throughout the last year, it's been down on Mondays, me on Tuesdays, yourself on the Thursday. We had Tony for quite a while on the Friday night. Uh, we had Gemma for a while on the Saturday. So, you know, each night there was kind of at least one live person throughout the week. And uh, that was good. It's just a trying to get more people involved and uh, and finding the money to keep going for a second year was what turned out to be the problem. 
I mean, the thing which I was always blown away with is right from day one, you were doing like a dozen shows yourself and with a very young, um, young child, young hunter. Uh, what it, I think he was two when the station began. If I'm, yeah, please correct me. Uh, yeah, he would, he would have been. Yeah, because we started in, in the October. So, yeah, not a few months before he was his third birthday. So, yeah, it was, uh, we had a small person around the house. Uh, but then, in some respects, that was fine because I could do most of the radio stuff after he was in bed. That's why all the evening shows started at eight o'clock. Because <laughs> it's like when it was safe for me to jump on air um, and I can help other people. And, I, and, you know, I knew if one of you had a technical issue, I was free to, you know, help out if it was after eight o'clock. Whereas before, I could never. I'm like, oh, I'm busy. Or I'm on. We had that issue with uh, a few times when Carrie was doing a, a show and they uh, would send me the file to upload and I would receive it with like half an hour before it was due to go out and I would be at the preschool picking up Hunter and trying to do it on my phone in the car. Um, so yeah, it's, there's all sorts of things we've had to work through. But yeah, I, I did do a few shows actually, didn't I? Yeah, because I've done the Bear Cave on Tuesday nights, which I haven't done for a few weeks now and uh, I now won't get a chance to do one. Uh, and I, I started doing a country show, but that turned out to be too much for me to do both. So I dropped the country show and then ended up starting secondhand songs uh, anyway. Mm. So, yeah, I've ended yeah. up doing three different shows over the course of the last year. And uh, the secondhand songs is something I really did want to highlight. That has to be the breakaway success of The Bear. Uh, it's been syndicated to how many stations now? Uh, well, now that The Bear is closing, we're back down to 41. 41 <laughs> yeah. stations in nine countries. So we are in England, Scotland, Gibraltar, uh, the Netherlands, Spain, Canada, America, Australia, and New Zealand. That's just so outrageous, that's outrageous success, sir, and so well deserved. Um, I listen to it uh, as much as I can, and I, I absolutely love it. Me and Nicola, just, you know, whether we catch it on the original run or on the repeats during the day, uh, it's lovely to hear all these cover versions we've never heard and I love the fact that you also do a, a thing that everyone thinks is a cover and it's the original but tell us a bit about kind of secondhand songs and explain it much better than I'm doing <laughs> well it's one of those things you know sometimes you you just have this idea that just seems just seems perfect and I don't know how it took me so long to come up with it I've always been interested in cover versions I used to have a huge mp3 selection of stuff that I'd cobble together I'd find random stuff and rip things off CDs and get this massive file that has apparently been lost I've been trying to find it for the last few months I cannot find this this hard drive anywhere uh, and I you know, collected them for years or really obscure covers and all this kind of stuff so it's something that's always been of interest to me and then I started looking into the idea of doing a syndicated show and I did syndicate the Bear Cave for a little while I went out live on a, on a few stations across the country, uh, but it wasn't really picking up any traction. It wasn't really the right show to do on the syndicated. Then I came up with the idea for secondhand songs. It struck me, oh, covers, yeah, it's a great idea. Because I'd started doing uh, the cover chain on the Bear Cave, where I do three cover versions that are linked. Yeah. It was a feature. And I effectively just turned that feature into a whole show, into a, to an hour-long show. Um, and I still do, I do that feature in the middle of that show and I do different features as well now around covers and like you say I play a, what we call an obscure original 
and I do a cover story bit. I know it's a bit of a cheesy name, but here we talk about a cover version, the story behind it, how that version came to exist, or what the story was of the original song, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and yeah, so that's how the, the show came about. And then it was a case of what do I call this show? And it dawned on me that I, when doing the cover chain on the Bear Cave, I would always go to a website. Uh, which is like a database of cover versions, and I would use that website to help me work out how to do a cover chain. Uh, and that website is secondhandsongs.com. And I thought, that is actually a great name. Yeah. I'll just call my show that. But I, thought, I didn't want to do it, just call my show that and be done with it. So I actually got in touch with the guys who run secondhandsongs.com. Um, Bastian is the guy I've been speaking with there. He's been great. He's in Belgium. Uh, and we hashed out a deal, uh, basically for 12 episodes. We, they'd licensed the name to me, uh, and I've got a page on their website now, and uh, they help update all the songs, basically, that we've put on the show. There are show notes on my website, and they go out on the, the, the Mixcloud and the Spotify versions of the show that you can click on, and it will take you straight to that page on their website. So you can find out all about the track if you want to, and you can find other versions of it and that kind of stuff. Uh, and so we're just in the process of working out a new deal now to make it an ongoing show. So uh, there is a new episode that wasn't went out last night, episode 13. So the first episode of, of season two, effectively. Wow. Uh, and there's more to come. And I'm, I've got a, a little whiteboard here in front of me with uh, episodes up to episode 20 kind of planned out uh, on this board. And coming up on, in episode 17, uh, you might like, is uh, Awesome Mix Covers Edition. So we're doing Awesome Mix Volume 1 in Episode 17, oh. and then I might do Awesome Mix Volume 2 in a few months. So Fair. we're going to recreate the whole Guardians soundtrack, but in covers. I love it. And and I've got to say, it is one of those shows which seems like such an obvious idea, but I've never heard anyone do it before. And it's just like... Yeah, exactly. Genius. Yeah, exactly. And uh, within a couple of weeks of doing it, I noticed that Radio 2 started a... Uh, covers thing uh, that went on the BBC Sounds app. So I was like, oh, okay. Oh, that's interesting. We're still still the original, still the best. And Uh, so... Yeah, uh, we've been going... Obviously, where the the bear is, uh, yeah, say, roaring its last tomorrow is the phrase I like to use. Uh, Where can we catch secondhand songs now? Where's the best place uh, to point us towards? If you want to listen to it anytime, you can look up on Mixcloud uh, or on Spotify. search secondhand songs with, with no spaces between the words on either of those platforms and you will find it the spotify version is done as a talk and music show so you get my talky bits and then you just get the track on spotify so sometimes i play a, a song on the radio show that they don't have on spotify so sometimes on the spotify one you actually get different music as well uh, so you might find something different so, for example, the other week we played uh, Matt's cover of uh, something from um, Hamilton, and that's yes. not on Spotify. So I, somebody else's version of the same song on the, on there. So sometimes you get different stuff up there. Also, it's so, on loads what? of different website, uh, radio stations. If there's one near to you, you can find it. Go to bearcavestudios.co.uk forward slash SHS, and it's got a list of all the radio stations that air the show. I kind of love the idea that on a cover version song, you might get cover of the cover. yeah absolutely yeah it's genius so look i'm sorry we have sort of run out of time here um firstly i'd like to say what is really amazing about secondhand songs uh is the fact that sometimes what you go for is your destiny isn't your true destiny and i think even though you've done an amazing job with the bear 
uh, I think secondhand songs, you were born to do that. And I think I'm so glad that it's reached the heights it has and it will only continue to do wonderfully, as will all your projects. Thank you very much in advance. Um, not only thank you for, of course, having me on the station and allowing uh, me to play my weird mix of music and uh, bring these interviews to the people, but also in advance for you appearing on Squeefest. We're going to talk all about that a bit later, but it's going to be you, me and Lizzie are going to be on there. Uh, Matt, as we mentioned before, and who uh, played Going Home there with the Matt Lee's band. Uh, we're going to be doing the... Um, I've forgotten the name of the show now. The Three Amigos, of course, we're going to be doing. Which, the Three Amigos, yes. Yeah, which we did as a sort of pilot and then never yeah, kind of went to... Yeah, it's ad hoc podcast. We just kind of do it every few months when we can find time together. So we're, get, we're going to... I, I think after this next one, we go for monthly, but uh, that's another discussion another time, sir. So yeah, yeah. Again, yeah. thank you very much. Uh, we're now going to throw to some tracks but uh, thank you very much Al Galpin here is Semisonic and Closing Time you're listening to The Bear Closing Time Open all the doors and the uh, producer, director and writer behind such films as Dracula 2001, Piranha 3 Double D, The Prophecy, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. He's done a few Hellraisers along the way, along with so many other wonderful films. We can't wait to talk to him. Please welcome to the Dr. Scree Show. Hopefully I won't butcher his surname. Dr. Dr. Joel Swazon. How are you doing, sir? Thank you so much, and I appreciate uh, the doctorate. I've been trying to pad my resume uh, for quite a while, so that's awesome. I, I, I let you get in my head by saying about being worried around doctors. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> that got into my head in your intro there. So. No worries. <laughs> uh, sir, how are you? How is everything uh, in your little area of the world in these weird and wonderful times? I'm enjoying my little secure bubble in a little island off the... Uh, coast of Seattle in in the U.S. and um, venturing out next month to actually make my first film since the uh, shutdown and it's uh, it's like Rumpelstiltskin coming out of the tree and seeing a whole new world out there that wasn't there when he left. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think like people say the new normal, but I, I don't think normal exists anymore. It's just whatever we're left with is is all good, I think. No, it's it's amazing. <laughs> uh, 
So, uh, like, we will, of course, get on to your new film. That's uh, my best worst adventure, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But uh, first of all, I hope you don't mind, but I'd like to take you back uh, a, a bit further than that. And uh, how, for you, did you first get your starting in the movies? Well, largely by doing what I recommend anybody who wants to get into the film business, which is just uh, find somebody who's making films and agree to do anything that's needed. Um, so, you know, I picked up garbage and followed people I thought were important and and was there to basically, you know, grab anything that fell off the tray. And, um, you know, I went to school for film and art and all that stuff. But um, really, it all came down to uh, just perseverance and just crawling up like everyone else did. And how do you kind of start spinning that into getting to where you need to be to start like working on the movies, at, you know, the level you want to be at? The first time I actually, I think, got a leg up in the world was, um, and I wasn't even intending to be a writer, by the way. I, I was always uh, wanting to be a cinematographer. That's was and is still my dream, but uh, nobody lets me near a camera. So that's a little difficult. <laughs> but um, I was following around a producer named Sandy Howard, uh, you know, basically as a production assistant. And one day over the phone, I heard him talking about a little story he wanted to make of a, of a dog, kind of an incredible journey type story about a dog gets lost in the New York uh, airport and has to journey his way across the U.S. to get hooked back up to his, uh, his mistress, uh, who ended up being played by Lillian Gish, the famous silent film star. Wow. And um, I thought, well, he doesn't have a story. He just got an idea, which is what producers are all about, really. And so I went home, scribbled down two pages of an idea to sort of flesh out his idea and came back to him and said, what do you think of this? And he liked it and said, okay, you're on. You write the first third of the journey. I'll find somebody else to write the second third and I'll finish it. And suddenly I was a writer. And it's just, you know, if I wasn't there at that time listening to him on the phone, you know, I'd be a cinematographer now and much happier. I think though it's the job of the producer at very least to not be happy any of the time. I think the producer is all about making the impossible happen <laughs> in it's, lots of weird and wonderful ways. And that's-, that's that's the glamorous way of describing it. How I describe it is being like mother to 73 infants all screaming at the same time. And it's just, who, who wants that job? It's just, it's, it's, a, it's a hellscape. But, you know, at the end of the day, for all of us who just love film and want anything we can do to be a part of making the, the, the train move forward, it's... There's some weird perverted satisfaction that comes out of it, but it's a shit show every every time. Am I allowed to say that on the squeeze show? That that's fine. It might be censored for the the radio output, but apart from that, it's all good. <laughs> okay, I'm not self bleeping, unfortunately. Um, but anyway, yeah. So producing, I highly recommend it. <laughs> I mean, the the thing which I find, uh, like, I wonder if it's a bit like this, because there's a, a quote which Douglas Adams once said, and I'll probably butcher it, but he said, it's like, he doesn't like writing, he likes having written. So it's like the, the end project. Is it a bit like that with a producer? It's wonderful to see the end result, but doing it. Yes, I would, yeah. I would disagree with, with Adams, though, that 
for me, writing is the is the the serene part of the movie making process. It's like you're just sitting down with a cup of coffee and a typewriter and going, "What if?" And if that's how you you enjoy spending part of your day, as I do, um, being sort of naturally inclined toward being an introvert, then um, it's great. That's it's the producing part that you go. Oh, I like the fact that I've just finished and that whole postpartum thing that I guess mothers have when they forget the pain of childbirth and they go, let's have another. I was actually, it's, it's just weird that you should bring that up because that's the way I described it. In, in a few weeks, actually just put this plug in now, excuse me for a second, but in a, in a few weeks on the 25th and 26th of September, I'm doing a live 24-hour broadcast uh, called Squeefest, raising money for a charity called Phoenix Dogs Rehiming. So that's my little plug put in there. But I oh, always nice. compared, I, it's the third time I've done it, I always compare it to uh, women with childbirth because th it's that same thing of like, because they've got to forget how painful it is to do it again is meant to be the, the apparently that's a medical fact. I'm not just making this up. And I think it's the same about doing a 24 hour broadcast. You have to forget how painful it is. Yes. It's, it's a, it's a 24 hour primal scream. And then somehow you forget all of that. I don't get, how, yeah. I don't know the biology, but it kind of works in various mediums. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of you as a producer, a couple of films which I think that's already a really difficult job and a couple of the ones which you've done I think must uh, be that to the nth degree like the Nightmare on Elm Street uh, 2 uh, Freddy's Revenge we were just watching that the other night and we just happened to be watching it when I actually got the thing saying that I got the interview sorted out with you so it was a very <laughs> weird we had it kind of like uh, on the pile of things to watch after we watched the first one for a little while we kept on meaning to get to him just having to put it in and then I got the message uh, that seems one where there are just so many things which you've got to set up just so, and so many things, so many weird budget items, if nothing else. Like, yes, you know, we could have five fake tongues which are going to fling across the screen. <laughs> well, you know, that's that's part of the fun of making movies that's kind of disappeared in the last 20 years, I would say, showing my uh, age stripes here. But Back in those early days of making Nightmare on Elm Streets, everything was done on set. It was physical effects. You know, you were you were there. There were bodies, and and you're plunging, you know, hands into real chest cavities, for what that's worth. But you're feeling the 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 the, the kind of the revulsion and the perverse thrill of being in that kind of queasy moment. But now it's just like people in green pajamas you know, reacting to tennis balls. And it's just so different. So I loved that about, you know, the early horror days of, of making movies that were real at the time, not just in, in the post uh, sphere. And um, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 was my first sequel. Um, I had not made yeah. Nightmare on Elm Street 1, but I absolutely was overwhelmed when I saw it. I just thought it was one of the greatest horror films I'd ever seen and was delighted to be called by Bob Shea at New Line to do the second one uh, as, a, as a producer because um, it was just getting to, to sort of ride on the creative energy of the guys who preceded us. And I know something about the second one on this rewatch, actually, because the first one, I think it was mostly horror of the mind which there are certainly elements of that in 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 your sequel and the the subsequent sequels 
but mm. I noticed there was more kind of like uh, kinetic things happening, more physical kind of uh, effects in that one. And I think there was a lot of things you came up with with the second one, which did follow forward onto the other ones. Did you get the thing? Have you ever seen the the following sequels? Um, to be honest, no. I I've seen bits and pieces of of the remainder one remainder ones, but I just at that point I just was so obsessed with getting my own stuff done that I wasn't really looking back over my shoulder because once we had done Nightmare on Elm Street 2, a guy named Dino De Laurentiis, a big producer from, from history, did huge things. The guy that we did Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure with called yeah. uh, me and my producing partner at the time, Michael Murphy, and said, hey, uh, we, we love what you did on Nightmare on Elm Street 2. We want to steal you from Bob Shea and pay you more money to make our own kind of Nightmare on Elm Street character, which at the time was the uh, beginning of a of a movie that ended up being uh, uh, Trick or Treat, which, which was, uh, it's kind of a little cult, heavy metal horror. I, I don't want to use the word classic. Whatever is one step down from classic, if there's a <laughs> word for that. Um, and... At that point, we were on to other things, and then that would jump from there to some somebody else's franchise, and started making a few of our own. and And uh, one day, I'm going to sit in my um, assisted living facility and watch all of that stuff that I missed, all the nightmares, and all the phantasms, and all the all the fourteen Hellraisers that I didn't do, and that'll keep me occupied for a few years. Well, um, just as someone who has watched all the films through a number of times, I I think it is the perfect kind of bridge between, as I say, what kind of uh, the first film did and what the sequels more went into. I think mm. it had a kind of real good mix and it does progress through. Well, I, I am proud of the movie, um, not only for the success that it had, but later on, years later, um, probably five years ago, I did an interview for um, a guy that was doing a, uh, an essentially a review of all the Nightmare on Elm Street films and trying to compile all the filmmakers uh, together on, on one show. And he sat me down and, and asked me, did I know that Nightmare on Elm Street 2 was the first uh, mainstream gay horror film ever made? And um, I go, well, not at the time, no. But in retrospect, certainly it, it had a lot of sort of coming out themes and things that I, I was utterly unaware of at the time, being as naive as I was. And so just to be a part of a whole nother cultural phenomenon, you know, and, and advancing a whole nother cause, as it were, subtly, if if that, um, it was really kind of interesting. I I never set out to do that and would be a part of that. And I'm so glad I was. Oh, what a wonderful bonus to, to find that you've done. Uh -huh. I, th I think there is a certain thing with some filmmakers because they just, because um, it's obvious, if it isn't a thing to you for, for someone to be gay in a movie, you don't even notice sometimes you're right. progressing that because you're just having someone who's gay or a character who's got those themes in it. Yeah, well, I was, yeah. I was both proud and appalled that I was clueless, proud that I was uh, involved and also... A little embarrassed, but also kind of proud that I didn't notice that it wasn't anything out of the ordinary. It was just like, for me, it was a movie, which is really, I think we've gotten to that point, hopefully, in, in much of our art and cinema that that gay themes, you know, um, 
up front or in the background are completely, it's no like telling Charlton Heston back on Ben-Hur that the character that he's having this very intimate relationship with, uh, you know, hiding the fact that he's supposed to be gay, you know? Yeah. And I, I think that, that it's so great that the hiding part is over, you know, but, um, but still it was a bit of a surprise. Like, oh, hey, did you know that? No. I mean, I think I think now it's more of a surprise. Like when you hear it's like, oh, this is the first um, movie to have a gay person doing whatever the thing is. You're like, mm -hmm. I mean, great, but really, only now. <laughs> you know, now. <laughs> yes. It, it's only good now is in a good way. <laughs> yeah, it is a good shot. But yeah, uh, so uh, you, go ahead. No, 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 please, please. I was just can say you just part of the fun of making any kind of uh, media is that you you know you discover things about what you do and what other people do. I'm sure you you know this well as you interview people and suddenly, wait, what? You know, yeah, you did yeah, that too? I, yeah. Uh, one which I was just going to say, like that you've talked about a bit already is Bill and Ted. And it, it was it was actually, I, I have to thank you. It was my first uh, film I brought on VHS. Like, which, uh, <laughs> I, I don't mean to, to make you feel old or anything, but it's just like- No, you I, don't look I, that I old though. So you must've been an infant. Uh, thank you, sir. Like your checks in the mail, but uh, it's, uh, <laughs> it was one of those movies which, for me, I just kind of discovered on the video shelves, and I love that kind of thing. Of, I think it was a lot easier to do that then. You could just discover something. So I guess mm. it's the equivalent of finding something on Netflix now or whatever streaming service. Yeah. And what I love about that movie is, or what I wonder, I guess, about that movie is, given that it was an eighties film, do you think it was easier to get it produced as a? Because it was kind of quite a far out there film. But I think the '80s was a weird enough time that it fit it almost. Yeah, it it was both easy and difficult. When, as I had mentioned earlier, we were sort of siphoned off uh, to work with Dino De Laurentiis. He was a guy who was bold with his pocketbook. You don't hear that word much lately, but if he believed in something, he didn't question the budget that much. It was just like, let's do this, let's make it happen. And um, at the time, and still with independent films, paradoxically, you know, um, the indies have to pay more for, for big names than the studios do because the big names know that they're the ones that are propping up, up your movie and they charge you for it. Uh, whereas the studios have all sorts of other things to, to sell besides the name. Anyway, that wasn't such a big factor on Bill and Ted because we were mostly discovering people except for, you know, George Carlin and some of the others. Um, but, the funny thing about Dino is he was Italian and he did not really understand American culture um, any more than I understand Italian culture. And he really had to take it on faith that all this stuff was funny. And uh, the only thing that he keyed into because he had done one of the biggest epics films on Napoleon ever uh, was that Napoleon was in the movie. And you go, okay, well, Napoleon's in the film. I can relate to that. All right. Um, and you say it's funny, let's make it. And um, we screened the, 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 the first cut to the executives, including Dino and not a smile throughout the whole film. They thought it was a complete disaster and they unloaded it on a fire sale. I mean, we made the film for $9 million, I think, and, and they sold it for like a million to this little company called Nelson entertainment. And, uh, they went on and tested it, you know, did a, just a plain old test screening in front of a real audience and it went through the roof. I mean, they knew 
at that point they had just struck gold and you know it's a lesson in perseverance it's a lesson in like um not necessarily bending to the moment because we've all been you know sitting with a friend and going look you got to see this movie and and it's the greatest thing in the world and you sit down with them lights go down roll the film crickets and you feel suddenly that that film doesn't work anymore because of the negative vibe of the person sitting next to you and you lose all your enthusiasm it goes away we're that impressionable as audiences at least i am and most people i know so yeah. that mo moment just nearly killed the movie and and doomed it to the scrap heap of history well i mean to me especially watching it uh like as you get older i think you can can watch a film i i and see where basically the producers managed to make some clever choices to save money. It's a film which to me, still to this day, looks more expensive than I think it, it was to make, you know. Mm -hmm. It doesn't look like a nine million uh, dollar movie. Uh, how was it when you saw the script and all the, the daunting things as a producer you were gonna have to make happen? Um, it was daunting. Uh, and that's the one thing I credit Dino well, I'd credit him for a lot of things, but one of the things he did, he he owned a studio in Rome. I'd never even been to Europe at the time, uh, so I was I was aboard immediately. Um, but Rome has every time period you could possibly imagine within a thirty-kilometer radius, and so there was very little building of anything. There was, um, you know, we went to Arizona to shoot the Western town, but otherwise we were shooting all these these past time periods in their real settings, you know? And it was not only, I think, good visually for the film, but it was phenomenal for me who, who the oldest thing I'd ever seen was, was Cleveland Stadium. And it was it was an eye-opener and, and probably the most, I don't want to oversell it, but the most transformative experience I've ever had. Also, um, I got engaged to my wife there too, so that helped. And uh, the one thing I love about it, the casting-wise, is George Carlin. You've mentioned there, and he is the the most the perfect casting for a getting something which is a bit out there. Like on the script, I could can imagine it's hard to envision Rufus to some people. Yes. Uh, I, George Carlin would get that like just no problem. Like he he, he didn't have enough drugs to get that with, without any any hurdles at all. <laughs> and then you've got to have someone though who again like Carlin can make sell sell that stuff as if it's so uh, commonplace. Right. That must have been an amazing find uh, in in getting him in on the film. Well, all of us of a certain age are just are or should be huge fans of Carlin because he he broke today's comedy open wide i mean he and a few others were that was that was the the genesis of everything we kind of know as comedy today and um to be there and just listening to him in real time just make stuff up see i i, I used a better word that time um it's all good. <laughs> uh it, it that was half the fun of of making the movie was whenever he was around 
and uh, the, the, of course, the, the kids of the movie at the time. You've got uh, Alex Winter, who was probably, if you, you're looking at kind of star meters of the time, was probably the biggest star at the time. And yes. no insult to him, of course, he's done a lot behind the camera since, but obviously Keanu Reeves has become uh, such a legend in film now. Uh, did, did you get the feeling from those two that they were uh, going to become what they did? Keanu who? Yeah, yeah, uh, Reeves something, I think. Yeah. Oh, that's right, right, I remember now, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. He, he embodied, I mean, there are very few times in a casting session that that everybody there, the director, the producers, the, the studio guy, everybody just goes, oh, there we go, that's the guy, because he was, the, he, he walked in and he was, he was Ted, and, um, Alex also sold us, but a, in a different way, because Alex kind of carried that that Spicoli Fast Times vibe with him. I mean, it's yeah. a hard thing to ignore. And so we kind of were cruising off what was at the time, like the, you know, college comedy of, of all time. And, and um, so that's what sort of made that pairing easy. And I, I'm impressed that Keanu has become such an icon. I think he's absolutely gifted, but like most stars, or a lot of them at least, they kind of hone in on sort of one or two personalities. And Keanu's got his Ted personality and he's got his sort of matrix, laconic, you know, cool dude personality. Yeah. And and those are his things. Those that's the sort of currency of his realm, and he does it really well. But yeah. um, I don't think you're going to see him playing like a crazy Santa Claus or something. You know, it's it's like that. He's he has got his thing, and he's super good at it. And I'm proud of him. Yeah, I mean, I think any any of those gents, I I picked out George Carlin there, but but with any of those performances, there is a. A re there is a very lazy version you could do of that, of just selling it for kind of the big laughs, but mm -hmm. they, are, they are reading every line like they mean it, like this is just the most serious thing in the world to them, saying the most ridiculous things. And it's the same thing with, uh, I always compare kind of this to Leslie Nielsen, because a really good director like the ones, the Zucker, uh, the Zucker Brothers, I think it was on Airplane, and uh -huh. they they told him, because he started playing it for laughs, they go, no, we've hired you because you're a great actor. Deliver this really seriously, and it will be twice as funny. And he yes. got it, and he did that through his film. Then you get some of his later stuff, and people didn't know quite how to use him as well, I think. And he was uh -huh. playing gloves, and it was half as funny because of it. Uh, and I think all of those actors in Bill and Ted do that uh, tremendously. Yeah, it's it's it, there's an alchemy that goes on there, and I I don't pretend to understand it fully, but the that fine line between as you say, the seriousness and then just allowing the comedy to sort of filter through it, you know, that, that you're, you know, you're a vector for it. And, and that's, that's an, that's the invisible part of the, of the skill that I don't quite reckon with. And some people just do it so well. And Liam Neeson does it uh, at times pretty, pretty, pretty well too, uh, that he recognizes that, that, you know, the, the, the 27 movies he's done that all riff off, I've got a special set of skills, at some point become funny. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they just do. And the, the trick of, of that for all of us is to stay ahead of, of those people that are going to lampoon us 
you know, without our knowing it. I, I think this is you. You bring me seamlessly onto Piranha Three Double D. Is this something which I <laughs> wanted to say about? Because like to me, those films, are, those types of film, are genius. Because it's like the Sharknados. It's like mm -hmm. they realize what they are. Like they're, they're a ridiculous concept. And then again, you have to kind of sell it like it's a real thing happening. Mm -hmm. uh, again, what, what's it like just seeing that script for the first time? And and was there any, any part of you which was kind of wanting to step away? Or was it like, no, I get this? I swore I would never admit to this, but I was the, the principal writer on that film as well. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think I knew what we were doing, um, which was to just send up the, the you know, the, the Jaws genre. I think that we did that right before or after Sharknado, but it was, it was in that spirit. And mm. yeah, we were just being asses. We, we, we knew it and we knew that we were just defiling ourselves with every scene that we did there. And, and, um, and we were both predictably rewarded uh, in a small segment of the filmmaking public and destroyed by a huge amount of outraged people that thought that it was, it was just a bridge too far. And um, I happen to side a little bit personally with the latter that, that we really did kind of oversell what was, you know, the frat boy humor and the, the, you know, the raunch, you know, it, it just, it, it ultimately didn't sit that well with me. And, and, I don't go around using that film as probably my lead off when I mention the stuff that I've done. But I also recognize that every film has its its place, uh, unless it's really, really bad. And it works for a lot of people whose humor, for whom that humor is spot on. So Yeah, I, I think definitely there is a thing whereby we do have to be careful in this Monday of age of being a bit more respectful. We've learned a lot more about how we're doing things. However, I think there is a place for raunch and uh, that kind of thing. And I think Piranha 3 Double D is where, where it sits. I, I think that's it's appropriate to the situation, if you will. Yeah, it, it is. Um, um, but it, it was also a launch pad career-wise for me into thinking, you know, I do feel at some point I owe myself, if not the people that I serve with something a little weightier and more substantial in terms of, you know, stories that affect people in a positive way. So I'm not, I, I haven't become born again as a filmmaker, but I am trying these days to sort of balance humor, which I still, I'm always going to be a sucker for a good gag, you know, uh, with, yeah, but what are we really also trying to tell here? You know. Yeah, I, I again, I think it's like, but but like for that film, if you're going to do a send up of that kind of film, of that kind of ridiculous in those films, it's hard to do that without referencing things which were in those films. I yeah, think it would have true. been weird if you know. I don't think it would have hit as well for what it right. was doing if you hadn't put that in there. Um, no. Yeah. I do have I do have moments that I I cherish in that film i mean any any time that a, an annoying little brat kid just walks up to the water and immediately gets eaten by a piranha it's just like that's special magic to me yeah, but there's other things i could maybe take back from that movie as i look at it 
Um, uh, just before we get to the next film we're going to ask about, we have got some comments. So I just want to check this with you, Joel, because you might want to. Did you want to become famous by followers on Prime and viewers on BigFollow.com? Just, just want to check in with you, Joel. Do I want to become famous? Wanna... <laughs> oh, by followers in Prime and I, I think we're on... getting followed by a spam bot, but on this interview, it's okay. <laughs> um, I I like the the other part. I'm I'm famous is 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 a little I mean, I think hard to bear, but, but but buying followers, if I could get a million followers, that would be, that would be like really lovely at this point because I am so late to the game on social media. I, I basically, I think I have, oh, well, I just got on Twitter uh, two days ago. So I think I'm up to three, four followers. So I need to get into multiples on that one. Well, I'll, I'll give you a follow as soon as we're done here. <laughs> okay, great. I could use a few, please. <laughs> Everyone, please follow it. along if you're watching this or listening There's on the radio version. There's nothing sadder than seeing a, a poor old filmmaker who looks at his his Twitter uh, page and sees that this week he added one follower. <laughs> I, I just had a moment there where I realized I'd put that thing up as a joke and then I realized I was actually advertising the service. So I, I quickly whipped it off the screen there. <laughs> oh, okay. Because I'm, 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 I took notes and I'm, I'm about to call them after the show. Give me some followers. No, no, we don't want to encourage them. We don't want to encourage them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, again, I know I'm bouncing around a little bit here, but uh, Dracula 2001. So actually, I've, I've had the uh, good fortune of interviewing Dacre Stoker, who's Bram Stoker's great grand nephew, I believe it is. Wow, cool. I wish I was and there so for that one. So we talked a bit about the different versions of Dracula. When you're tackling something which has been trod on so many times, uh, Dracula 2001 did seem to get some real purchase in the... Um, culture is doing something different with Dracula. What seemed important to you? Because you, you were on the screenplay for that one. What what elements did you feel like you had to put in there? Well, that was that was a really interesting, um, for me at least, uh, a process because um, I was asked by um, the uh, the head of uh, the Weinstein Company at the time, the, the one that's not currently uh, doing time, the other one who I actually have a very decent relationship with Bob Weinstein. Um, but uh, he asked me to write Dracula, which was, at the time was Dracula 2000. I guess we uh, must've delivered late, but um, I told him, you know, I'm the last guy that should be writing this because I don't, I don't have anything new to say. I mean, there's just been way too many Dracula movies out there. Um, and I would just be adding to the glut. And he goes, that's why I want you to do it because you don't want to do it because you want it to be something different. And I need you to do this. So uh, I talked myself out of the gig and back into it in the same conversation. Um, so now I needed something that, to, to drive my own interest in the, in the project. And um, I'd like to say that I came up with the hook, but it was actually the director, Patrick Lussier, who called me one day when I was struggling and said, um, you know, all this business with silver and the cross and and the wine and what the wine represents, you know, transmogrification or whatever and the body of Christ and all that stuff um, that, that, that repels Dracula is also arguably the stuff that would um, have 
originally caused the, the, the emotional wreckage that Judas suffered at the hands of what was his brother, Jesus at the time. And, um, you know, Judas betrayed Jesus, 30, 40 pieces of silver, whatever it was, that became like, you know, um, blood money in his hands. And, uh, you know, he tried to kill himself. And in our story, he, he failed because God wouldn't let him kill himself after what he had done. And so you have this guy roaming the earth, the original Judas, who is now filled with self-loathing, hates the world, wants to inflict as much suffering as he can. And his weaknesses are anything that really deals with the brother that he betrayed, the cross, you know, the, the, the silver, the crucifixion, all that stuff. The silver bullets suddenly take meaning to me. I understand why silver, why these things that repulse him, which were almost arbitrary yeah. in, in earlier incarnations. And that was my way in. Suddenly this damaged soul, this guy that, that had another life that was, was misunderstood. Um, and, you know, everybody's got their own take on Judas through history and, and, um, I have mine, but um, even Christ at some point said that this was something that had to be. It's almost like I was a puppet for um, for your your exaltation, really. And and my my uh, Christian education comes largely from watching Jesus Christ Superstar about a dozen times. <laughs> And J Judas is the centerpiece of, of, of that opera, as, as you know. You know, um, it's really about him, I think, more than Jesus. And uh, it was a sort of a, a risky move, but I went for it until I got a, a call from Bob Weinstein one day, who is Jewish. And he said, what, what's this business? And I just got to the end of the script. What's this, what? Judas? He's, he's Judas? He's Dracula. I mean, what have you done here? I mean, what is, what is this guy? And I started, you know, into that whole litany that I just shared with you, probably at way too much length. No, um, no that's wonderful. I love that. Okay. Well, the the the, the punchline is that that I did the whole thing with him times ten. It was like a thirty-minute dissertation on Judas because I had researched and I'd done my homework and I was I was ready for this because I knew I was going to get it from him and I was like blah 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 and it's just silence you know that silence that goes on so long you think the connection has been lost yeah. and you, you go like uh, hello you, you, you there and he gets back to me and he just goes yeah I'm here all I wanted to know is this Judas guy is he a good guy or a bad guy <laughs> and, I go, and I go uh bad guy. And he goes, all I needed to hear, click. And that was, that was uh, me kind of over overselling. But that's how that's how I actually got excited about the movie. It, it really seems to me it's the same thing as with delivering Shakespeare. So you know, it, it gets to the point where you've got to look at it like it's something brand new. So because of course, when they created it, that was the whole thing. Whereas it becomes <laughs> uh, so derogated to like, there's these rules about Dracula, like you were saying, and you've got to incorporate those. But I think you've got to look at the uh, the original text and what it's telling you, and then approach it like it's something brand new. And again, that's, uh, yeah, so easily lost in some like Shakespeare as well. 
Yeah, well, the, and and sometimes it's there, um, right waiting for you to take it. I mean, in Bram Stoker's Dracula, there is a point, and I can't remember now. Apologize, it's been twenty years, but it there's what the exact quote is. But in the book, there is a line that says, "He stood with the face of Judas." or the guise of Judas or the aspect of Judas or something. And it was just like, he had made the connection. Stoker did. Didn't use yeah. it, didn't, 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 it went no further, but it did provide some way of cycling back and saying, there's a, there's a tiny breath of legitimacy to what we did. Yeah. So that all the haters, which you inevitably get whenever you mess with a franchise, uh, at least you have something to push back against. Well, I mean, I mentioned uh, Dacus Stoker before when I spoke to him. Um, by the way, interview available on our YouTube channel if anyone cares to look it up. But, cool. Uh, he talked about the fact that when he got into it, when he realized his lineage, he looked back and did a kind of forensic look back at the history of Dracula and the history of Bram Stoker and found all these things which happened in his life. And there is just a, so many things which you'd never imagined came from something real which happened, such as uh, with bloodletting at the time, and there was a blood rare blood disease which Bram Stoker had, which then went into Dracula. And there's all ah. these things you'd never imagined. So I think that's what you've mm -hmm. got to do. You've got to find that thing. No one's ever really picked up in the original text, such as the Judas connection, and bring that into it. So I th think that's where it kind of um, really set itself apart. I think it was that and the charm of Jerry Butler as Dracula. And I think that's what we got away with. A little bit of murder doing that. Before we get on to uh, your new film, I did just want to touch on one other, and it's mm -hmm. Highlander Endgame. Uh, so growing up in the 80s, as I did, of course, I was obsessed with Highlander. Uh, and the idea then seemed such um like like now it's quite common to get two ends of a franchise and put them together and two eras of a franchise it just hadn't really been done when you did endgame so you're bringing the tv show and the movies together uh, right. how did you get involved in that and where did the idea start of that film that was another one where i wasn't a i loved the original highlander and greg wyden the guy who wrote the original highlander uh is a good friend of mine and also wrote um the Prophecy, which is uh, the movie that launched a whole franchise that we've we've done. Um, and he also wrote Backdraft, which I had nothing to do with, but um, talented guy. And one of those things where you create a, a whole tapestry of history that is so rich that it can keep sequels going forever. And TV series, obviously. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, I hadn't really been watching the sequels of the TV series. I watched the first one and kind of moved on like I often do. And um, I, I don't I, want to say anything about another filmmaker's work who isn't here, but it might have been a good idea with some of the other sequels. Yeah, <laughs> well, well, I have to say not everyone loved my sequel either. I, I remember when we, uh, when we came out in theaters, I think it was the New York Times review said, it was in the middle of summer. It was like a heat wave. And um, um, the New York Times review started off by saying, Highlander 4 is the perfect movie if you want to just get off the street and into a cold air-conditioned theater. So I was fine. If that's if that's the thing that gets you, you know, if you're just getting 
getting some air conditioning is what gets you into a theater to watch my movie. That's fine with me. I hope that you like it, but um, they were not loving it. Uh, so yes, get, getting back to your earlier question, the shotgun marriage of TV and film um, was fascinating because I had to do some quick learning on the, the Duncan McLeod side of the, the equation because I wasn't very familiar with him. And, and the, 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 the orders that were handed down to me was, um, we're phasing out Connor and we're phasing in Duncan. So, um, you know, they're besties and, but there can only be one, right? That's the, the whole idea. So uh, I really did kind of like, again, looking for that one way in that thing that you really, what drives you to make the movie was, I get to be the guy to kill Connor McLeod. Okay, that's that's my thing. I'm, I'm gonna, all, all roads lead to that. And so we had a fun little fight between those two. And that's actually most of what I remember from that film is, is that we got those two guys squaring off and this whole, you know, again, looking for something, subtext is too pretentious a word, but something going on underneath the surface that drives the, the, the scene. These two guys loved each other and they, neither of them wanted to kill each other and yet they knew they had to. And we invented this sort of, sword move where once in it, which is kind of an absurd thing, but I, I'm not a swordsman, so I, I was perfectly happy to pitch it. Uh, a certain sword move that if you get into that configuration, there's no way way you can get out of it without slicing a guy's head off. Um, and what once they got into it, they had a moment for, oh, oh I love you, man, and sorry to see you go, and whee, off goes the head. I just love the fact that it seemed to really bring it back to what the films were about. Like, you know, the, the second one, again, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to tear something down to build something else up. Heard they, it was a bit of a debacle. They took the second one to an alien planet. Like that just, that lost me yeah. a little bit, having them being aliens. You went back to the sword fighting and the two generations, again, that idea of like, yeah, there's a great poignancy out of two people who do have love for each other who are in the situation where they've got, one's got to kill the other at the end of it. Yeah, I, I, that 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 was that was the moment for me, and I, what makes me happy to have been involved in the film because, um, yeah, we stayed on planet Earth. Happy to do it. <laughs> I, I think that's an improvement, just from my tastes. Okay, like a... <laughs> I'm I'm on your side, man. I I, I agree, hundred percent. And okay, full disclosure. And thank you so much for not bringing it up, and 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 why I am I have no idea. Um, they went on to make another. Uh, Highlander, Highlander 5, The Source. Um, mm. Don't know if you ever saw it. Hope you didn't because um, I'll take some of the blame because I was like the first writer, but then it got rewritten like 70 times after that. And part of the reason I did it so badly was it was, they were determined to shoot it in South Africa, you know? And um, so I had no idea how to connect South Africa to the whole Highlander mystique. So I was just writing in locations that I wanted to visit and go on safaris and stuff. I was just, it was a complete journeyman effort and um, it didn't get improved on the rewrites. And I, I took a, I think I took a, a pseudonym on it. Um, it was that bad, never done that in my life before. And uh, yeah, if you want to really see the rock bottom of of you think Highlander two was bad, check out the source. Okay, okay, I'll I'll have to do a watch through them all. But uh... my favorite plug for a movie I've been involved in ever. 
um, check out the worst movie of it of the year, quite likely. Hey, look, if you always swing for the fences, you're going to miss sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And plus, plus I, I, I'm well aware from the amount of people I've interviewed uh, in, in, in your position or one similar, there are sometimes the studio just gives you a bad idea and you've got it wrong with it. That's so the case. And I, okay, now I'm going to brag a little bit because some of the time that makes us the unsung heroes because any, any jackass can take a brilliant idea and make an okay script out of it. But it takes some real inspiration to take a really bad idea and then transform it into something decent. I, I think I've done that a couple times. Maybe not elevated it to magical, but at least gotten it to like watchable. And nobody sees the sausage making in that process. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I, I don't think you've got a bad hit ratio, sir, though. <laughs> <laughs> you've got Dragon 2001, Piranha 3, Double D, and Bill and Ted in your back catalog. I, I think you're doing all right. I think you're doing all right. I'm trying still. Uh, let's get on to, to your new film. So it's uh, My Best Worst Adventure. We got th sent through the trailer. Uh, unfortunately, because I don't trust YouTube not to take me down for playing stuff, even though I'm allowed to, because that happens. Um, I, I, I can't play it right here, but please, guys, do check it out. Uh, I love mm -hmm. the fact that it's a wonderful coming-of-age kind of story you can tell. It's got that kind of trademark sense of humor of yours uh, woven throughout it. And it is lovely to see a, a female lead from another country, which still to this day, I know, is not the easiest sell to a lot of studios. So uh, how did the idea of this come to you, first of all? Uh, the idea came to make this movie. Um, the, the bigger context was I was just looking for something a little different from the mainstream horror that I had been doing uh, and comedies and 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 action stuff um but i didn't want to just throw away the roots of what gave me a career but i wanted to find a new context to explore it with and i was actually um uh in bangkok thailand shooting a um a kind of horror thriller the uh producer of that film uh her name's Cheryon Taboranan, was telling me one day about, you know, her life growing up in, in northern Thailand on a little town near the, Thai, uh, the Cambodian border. And they, for, for kicks as kids, like eight-year-old kids would be racing water buffaloes. And these things are fast. And they're basically stampeding at the speed of horses and with nowhere near the control. And you're riding bareback with nothing to hang on to. And, and it's literally riding a stampede and if you fall off you get you get trampled and many people do fall off all the time and um it's because that that culture is so wrapped around uh the buffalo as as ours is around horses they have that sport has evolved into being a national centerpiece and they have you know big sports stars doing it now that are that are national heroes they're 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 rock stars and so it was really for me a sports movie um, with some horror elements attached to it, but it really just comes from this girl in LA who is, you know, typical tween who not, doesn't get along with anybody, her parents, and has, has suffered a, a horrible loss of her mother in her life and now has functionally turned herself mute and going to this, what she terms an alien world. 
And for yeah. me, it was like the horror motif of being dropped down in the middle of an alien world and trying to survive. And uh, there is a coming of age aspect to it. She she meets another truly mute child who is the victim of, of terrible abuse and bullying. And together they sort of concoct this scheme to win the Buffalo race and win enough money that can essentially buy, buy them freedom to live the life that they want. And so there's a, some romance in it. There's some some scares and some some action. And and ultimately, I think the film really is, is about something that I don't have in a lot of my films, which is heart. You know, it was just about two very real people that you're just pulling for and crying for and laughing with the whole time. And um, I've had the best reviews of my career and the best feedback of my career. And um, uh, we've done tremendously on the festival circuit and, and I can't wait to see how the, the general public responds. Um, um, hoping it doesn't begin with how come there are no severed heads in this movie. <laughs> Well, I'm going to start with, I, I think like this just for me and like you didn't, you didn't ask for this, but it's like, I, I think that uh, you're selling yourself short there. So I think what, what is prevalent with your work, like you don't care about Bill and Ted unless there's a lot of heart behind them, unless you know they're good people at heart. Like they may be going on this ridiculous adventure, excellent adventure, if you will, but they, they have to be people you, you love for, for that to work. And I think that's uh, endemic in a lot of your work. You're talking about Highlander. It's like, I think that's the heart of it is the idea that these two people don't want to kill each other, but they're going to be in position. position. Yeah. In a film based around there can be only one, you kind of know where it's going. Yes. <laughs> I think that heart's kind of necessary for a lot of your films. But anyway, that's uh, that's another thing. But, but with this film, it's one of those things which, I would guess, and you can tell me, where you are stepping into a world which is 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 alien from ours, how much is in the script and how much is discovery there? And do you get corrected by some of the uh, local people you're working with as to how that should look? I was corrected all the time. And the one thing that a lot of first world filmmakers, the mistake they make is going in and going, I I, I know your culture and I know how to how to describe it and sell it to the to the world and and perhaps you're right but you're doing a disservice to the people who is you're actually chronicling and um i tried i think fairly successfully to really be sensitive to how they do things and how they approach things and how they emotionally respond to things and when i stepped in it and somebody told me so i i stepped back um and um very much helped by this producer who um, um, was instrumental in, in helping me shape the story because it was drawn from her own life. And then I had this crazy expat German producer named uh, Raymond Huber, who um, provided all of the insistence that this movie still have Western, you know, I guess the popcorn movie beats, you know, the things that, that we still get us to stand up out of our seat and cheer and, and scream at scream back at the screen and, and laugh and all. And so to have that sort of balance um, of support was great, but it was at its core, both the character in my story and me as a director going out to this like 
very foreign place and trying to, to you know, keep our heads above water. And I really empathized with the, the story at, that was going on in front of the camera. Something I alluded to when we started speaking about this film is that there's obviously there are movies. In fact, again, I could, I could point to, to, to most of your back catalog. There is something in those movies that you can sell to a uh, to a uh, studio, which probably they already have something that they kind of want from that film. Like, oh, there's vampires. There's kind of like uh, mm -hmm. there's time travel. There's all these kind of elements. With this film, I think it's one particularly you have to have you've got to sell them on the passion of it. How yes. easy was it to do that going out to studios who usually haven't always got the greatest imagination for buying something they didn't know they want? This was, um, this is what made the experience so great for me and uh, not to disparage some very brilliant studio execs I've worked with uh, yep. over yep. the years, but there were none on this one. I went straight to a money source who, um, long story short, was connected to a person who was connected to a person who thought that they might be interested in the subject matter. She read the script and um, just said, I will give you way too little money to make this movie. But in exchange for that, I will not tell you to do anything that you don't feel right about. It's your movie. You figure it out. And we'll just try to sell it after the fact. And uh to be able to make a movie without the creative interference that comes from having to, to, to check off certain boxes was the closest to an auteur that I've ever gotten to be where I actually got to use my own instincts to say, this is this, this way of telling a story is valid and will be a better approach in the end. Um, and I took some risks, obviously it's a movie that, that stars, Children and Animals, um, which is always sort of a combustive mix, um, in a foreign language, in a foreign land, I sort of mitigated that a little bit by the fact that the two characters that are central to the story, and this is very much uh, by design, never speak a word through the whole film. So it is essentially, in many respects, a silent movie, which I've always loved and always wanted to sort of transport back to that time when when before talkies sort of interfered with the process of a visual medium where people had to express themselves by what they did and how you saw in their eyes and their 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 dispositions what they were feeling and um that's what made it truly exciting to me because it, it just came alive that way and these two child actors were so incredibly gifted that if if not for that it would not have worked I mean, I think I've heard in many an interview, including some which I've conducted myself, uh, people talk about that moment where they get the option of like, right, you can get this much money from this studio or this far lesser amount of money, uh, but you get more control. And uh, filmmakers have regretted making the other choice to you, sir. <laughs> yeah. I, I it shows in this trailer. Well, thank you. Um, I would urge and encourage uh people to see it, even if they're not normally inclined toward what might by appearances seem like just a family art movie, it's not. It, it, it's probably no slight coincidence, at least, that um, the best worst adventure of, of the title, my best worst adventure, harkens back a little bit to Bill and Ted from the earlier day, yeah. um, that 
as you say, there there is heart in all the humor and, and action in that film as well. And um, that, that was part of the learning process. Uh, here, I think we dig a little deeper into the personalities, but um, there's that still feeling of like really coming out of a movie with a smile on your face. And we're we're uh, we're going um, on uh, uh, VOD. We come out uh, September first, and then streaming shortly thereafter. So, don't ask me how to to identify all of the new platforms that people are using these days. We used to just make a movie and it would go to a theater and then wind up on DVD and VHS and then wind up in your pocket after you uh, had found it in some flea market, right? That's how you found Bill and Ted, I think. Or was that uh, Nightmare? Not, well, Nightmare we just happened to watch recently just by coincidence as I was hearing about oh. this interview. But yeah, yeah, Bill and Ted, it was on the shelf in Woolworths. I can even tell you the story. The shelf in Woolworths. Okay. That see, that was I could I could understand that. Okay, this movie's gonna wind up on a shelf in Woolworths, but now it's winding up in the ether. I don't even understand where it is and what it's doing and how people are getting it. But I think if you Google my best worst adventure, something will come up on uh on uh, September first. We, we don't even have Woolworths anymore. Like that was the one place where you could buy, like there was Wool Woolworths and WH Smith's in the small town of Romsey, which I grew up in, which is a little market town we call them over here. And, where, else uh, could, yeah. <laughs> where else could you get a video at a 25 cent turtle? You know, I mean, <laughs> that, that's what we got at Woolworths. We got like live turtles to take home to kill. Oh, okay. I, th I think it might be a different uh, chain, but like over here it was kind of like, you, you could get your DVDs and stuff. It was one of the earlier kind of like little anything stores. So you could get garden supplies. You could get right, anything. Yeah. Our anything, included, turtles, over here. our anything included turtles. Yours didn't. I'm sorry yeah. to say. Uh, so, Seth, like just a, as another little plug, my best worst adventure, please do look out where you can get it in your uh, local territory, wherever you're watching this. Uh, sir, one thing which I do have to say, and I'll probably get accused of being a social justice warrior or something like that, but I would like to thank you as someone who has grown up as every kind of like majority, straight, straight white cis male, it is really lovely to see films which highlight different kind of parts of the world, highlight a female protagonist and a young female protagonist at that. I, I just think it's, it's, it's lovely to see. I've seen enough films with me in it. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, me too. I mean, we're not we're not the, the most exciting people to follow these days. Well, you are, but I'm I'm speaking mostly myself now. Uh, well, thank you, sir. Again, I can't wait to to see the film, and uh, I hope it comes on to some great success. Uh, thank you very much for joining us tonight. Thank you, much appreciated, and so sorry for whatever kept us apart before. But it only makes the passion stronger this time around. That was it. It was worth the wait, sir. It was definitely worth the wait. Uh, right, before we do finish, uh, on the radio version of this, this Thursday, it's actually, as it as it bizarrely happens, my last radio show on the station I'm on. Unfortunately, the Bear.Live, which uh, usually hosts my show, is uh, closing its doors. Uh, so uh, to, to go out this interview, though, before I go back to me live, uh, what would you like to hear song-wise coming out of this? It can be anything. Okay. Uh, burning Down the House by the talking heads because i do that a lot excellent choice uh so if you're listening on the radio you are now going to enjoy the talking heads burning down the house
that was the avalanches and frontier psychiatrist and that is going out to my little lady my woman that's going out to nicola um now for anyone who hasn't heard me say that before nicola would quite often during the life of this radio show come on and do the big question of the week with me uh, we haven't got a big question this week just with interviewing al and then that wonderful interview with joel sizzle we thought it might be just a bit pushed for time we wouldn't have enough time for some wonderful tunes like that and that's one of nicola's favorite weird and wonderful tracks and she requested and we played it quite a few times on this show so i hope you enjoyed that hope you enjoyed my interview with joel as well uh what an interesting guy and so many stories from the movies over the years it was just a delight to talk to him and it's one of my favorite interviews i've done for a while because you never know when you're going to interview one of these celebrities which you've never met and you know you you love the work of but you don't know if you're going to click in an interview there is such a thing as a chemistry to one of these interviews and sometimes that's more than others i'm not going to lie sometimes it goes really great and most of the time you know i can pull some gold out of um what we're doing as an interview occasionally though things go south and uh, it's really nice to have one of those interviews where you really feel like you click with someone and joel was one of those people uh, so it was a great time talking to him guys we are heading towards the end of the show we just got 17 minutes left here on the bear like i mean that's 17 minutes total ever here on the bear for the dr squeeze show so look let me give a quick plug to something we've got coming up very soon. So um, this is Squeefest. It's my 24-hour video broadcast, which is raising money for Phoenix Rehoming. This is happening Saturday the 25th to Sunday the 26th of September 2021 from 2 p.m. till 2 p.m. BST. So that's British time. If you're listening anywhere in the world, please just search that time versus your local time zone. Or just search London time because the UK here is all in one time zone. So it's easiest to kind of search us versus most countries which have multiple time zones. But who are Phoenix Rehoming, first of all? They're a wonderful charity which rescues dogs from around Europe and brings them here to the UK to be rehomed. Our dog ourselves, or one of our dogs, we've got Dottie and we've got Benny, short for Benton. And Benton was rescued from Romania, where he was found at the side of a road at four weeks old. And if he indeed survived, he wasn't going to have much of a life. And the chances were he might have ended up in a kill shelter. But Phoenix found him and they, along with a lot of other dogs, brought them here to the UK. And now he's healthy and happy living with us. And this is a story they have with uh, hundreds upon hundreds of dogs which they've rescued over the years. It really is wonderful. And they've never got a stash of money at all. They haven't got like some money to pull, fall back on during hard times. So during the lockdown, this was really difficult for them because they literally raise money as they rescue. So during lockdown, as you can imagine, some people rescue dogs who weren't prepared for the there are some extra things which sometimes come with a rescue from around Europe. And some of these dogs are very nervous to begin with. But if you work with them, they can be the most loyal and loving and amazing pets you're ever going to have. But that involves a little patience. And some of these people didn't have patience. Some of them returned dogs, especially when they returned to their jobs. And they hadn't thought what they were going to do when they returned to their jobs. So Phoenix stepped in and um, 
they've just kept going and it's a wonder that they have during these hard times so more than ever they need support but are we just asking you to shell out your hard-earned money which by the way if you go to drscree.com that will redirect you to our facebook fundraising page now some mobile phones or mobile devices don't like uh, the redirect so you just have to paste it into your browser you just have to put drscree.com into your internet browser on your phone or on your computer and it will find it um and it will bring you there it's just within facebook sometimes the redirect just goes a bit funny and you can donate right now. We're already up to £69 as of me saying this. Uh, and we couldn't be prouder that we've already got so much money in the bank. But we need more money still. To uh, We've we set a lofty goal of £500. Now I know that's a lot to ask. But if everyone just donates a little, I believe we could get there. Especially with the 24-hour broadcast. I'm going to be there for 24 hours. But I'm not going to be on my own. Not only are we going to be joined by shows and other podcasts. Such as Talking Codswallop, which comes up up after this radio show here on the Bear.Live. I'll also be joined by these celebrities. So you've got author Una McCormack, uh, which she's worked on Doctor Who, Star Trek, uh, Firefly, loads of other properties in book form. We've got Chuck Roy and Sammy Shah, who are both comedians. Chuck is from the US, Sammy's from Australia. So we've got acts going, going on throughout the night. What I've made sure this year is, like in previous years when I've done Squeefest, so this is Squeefest the third, this is the third time I've done this, and in previous years, during the night, it's kind of been the poorer cousin almost. Like, you know, not only, you know, I, I, I'm I, not saying anything against the wonderful shows which join me overnight, but we haven't had the guests throughout the night. This time we have, due to getting guests from around the world in different time zones, so we can keep the entertainment going for you. Anyway, I digress. We've got Toby Haydock from Coronation Street. He plays Fergus in that. We've got Sean Kelly from Storage Hunters, who's also going to be talking about his new online auctioneering training business so he trains you how to be an auctioneer and how to make money from it like he has and of course sophie aldred ace herself from doctor who from the seventh doctor era on doctor who and we've got more guests to announce if you follow dr squee social media so uh, at dr squee on twitter and instagram the dr squee show on facebook and that's our page and you can check us out, you know, on any of these social medias and you can catch all the announcements. This Saturday, 7pm UK time, we're going to be announcing two more fantastic guests. And they might have a little connection to one of my favourite uh, TV shows from back in the day, Due South. And you're, you're just not going to want to miss it. We've still got others to announce as well. So, like, it's just exciting times. Please do join us. Please donate. And please follow us on uh, YouTube as well. We've got a bit of a uh, harder to remember YouTube page because YouTube make you get 100 followers before you can change your YouTube channel name to something memorable. So please do follow because we need to get up to 100 so we can make it something more memorable for the day. So just go to YouTube and search The Dr. Squee Show. Anyway, that's the plugs for Squeefest. Please do join us. It's going to be a real good time and it's raising money for a real worthwhile cause. We just got enough time for a couple more tracks, so we're going to kick it off. First of all, this is I Would Have Loved You. This is Kelly Clarkson and Jake Hoot. And this is one which was introduced to me by The Bear, by Al Galpin. Thank you very much for listening, but here's another track. Uh, you're listening to The Bear, and this is The Dr. Squee Show.
You gave me every reason to feel like this. Now there's nothing you can do to change it. was boys to men and end of the road guys thank you very much for listening tonight thank you very much for listening for the last year thank you to all the guests who've come on to al our station manager to nicola and my dear beloved lady to all the fellow djs here on the bear.live i know this has been a wild ride for all of us we've had a wonderful time and it wouldn't be possible without everyone working together and that's what I love about these community radio stations. Uh, win, lose, or draw. It's the passion and the effort behind it, which is amazing. So again, thank you very much to Al. I've been Dr. Squee. For the bear, rawr, that was my show. And please, as always, remember, in a world where you can be truly anything, please be kind. I'm not trying to win. I'm not doing this because I want to beat someone, or because I hate someone, or because... Because I want to blame someone? It's not because it's fun. God knows it's not because it's easy. It's not even because it works, because it hardly ever does. I do what I do because it's right. Because it's decent. And above all, it's kind. It's just that. Just kind. Hey, you know, maybe there's no point in any of this at all. But it's the best I can do. Why not? Just at the end. Just be kind.